0: Now, if you a good sign, depending on your perspective, you know, uh, if you have no us, just a little of a recap, you know, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul gives us the, the central theme of the entire book. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. He says, you know, the, the gospel is about salvation. It's, it's at its core. It's tied to what the gospel is is and then from verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way to verse 20 in chapter 3 paul begins to just stridently make the case why we need to be saved why gentiles need to be saved why jews need to be saved why every human being underneath the stars need to be saved it is um there's no reason to cry out for a savior unless you need to be saved There is no hunger that will well up within our hearts for Redeemer unless we are convinced that we need to be redeemed. There is no reason to trust in God as our rescuer if we think that we're fine and we don't need to be rescued. And so in a very real sense, as we we go from 118 to 320, if we do not find ourselves offended through the text, then we're either not listening or your preachers are doing a bad job. Because in a very real sense, we are meant to be offended. We are meant to be shook. We are meant to have a mirror held up before our eyes so that we would see ourselves as we really are and not as we would imagine ourselves to be. And that then we would cry out for our Savior to do the work of the Gospel in our lives. I'm just going to begin, if you want to read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Almighty King, we have read your word, and we pray that you would bless the reading of your word with hearts that are open to receive it. Father, this is a hard truth you communicate. Several hard truths. We pray, Father God, that we would hear your voice speaking, and that you would ordain ordain yourself praise in the response of our hearts to it. In Christ's name, amen. And I think as I look at this text, I see two broad themes that jump out at me. One is humanity's quest for autonomy and God's response to it. You see in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And two questions should just jump out to you. You You know, number one who is what 's this lie he 's talking about? They exchange the truth of God for a lie what lie there 's a lot of lies going around. what lie second question who 's the they who does who does Paul here have in view it 's very interesting if we look in the in the Greek text, we see the word before the word translated lie is a definite article so now i 'm asking you to conjure up your grammar again if you were like me and failed grammar in high school, you know. A, defin- a better translation than a lie, would, because it's a definite article, would be the lie. You know, not a lie, not one among many lies. Paul here is talking about the lie that has been committed. At the root of all sin is the failure to give God the glory he deserves by worshiping him and instead exchanging that for the lie by worshiping the cre- creature rather than the creator. He calls it exchanging the truth of God for a lie because when someone fails to worship God, they're either doing it under the premise that he doesn't exist or that he's not worth making that much of a fuss about. I mean, in my experience, I've never met someone who said, you know what, yeah, I believe God is the only eternal, immortal being in the world. I think he's full of love and power and majesty and mystery and wonder, but I don't really want anything to do with him. We don't see people do that. We see people exchange the truth about God for a lie by saying, I don't think he's worth being worshipped. I think there are other things that are more worth being worshipped than him. And so they exchange the truth about God's character and revelation for a lie. That helps us begin to see who the they then is, doesn't it? It is everyone apart from Christ who chooses to ignore God and worship the creature rather than the Creator. Why do I call this autonomy? Well, you know, every instance in the New Testament, you see in verse 25, there's this word serve. They served the creature. Every other instance in the New Testament of that word serve, the, the Greek root, root, word at the root of serve, every other instance is talking about serving God. Every other one. Without exception, this is the only time Paul uses, or any New Testament writer uses that word to mean serving anyone other than God. And so what is he trying to get across here? He's trying to say that apart from Christ, all of us by nature worship and serve who? Ourselves. We worship ourselves. We worship the creature. We worship our own ideas and our own reason, our own values and our own likes and dislikes. We create our own standard of right and wrong. We do what we want, when we want, how we want, for as long as we want. We worship the creature by making ourselves little gods, as we heard about last week. We saw it last week in verse 21 when he said, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's what happened in the very beginning. First three chapters in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve are there in the garden. And, and, and God explicitly said, you can do this and you can do this. This is the one thing you can't do. And they came to the moment where they looked at the fruit and they said, I want that. I desire that. And, and all of a sudden they put their values and their desires above the God of the universe. And they said, we think we know better. We think we know better than He knows. And we're going to act on that. Even if it is contrary to God's commands. We see the same idea in view here. The truth about God is, is that He is the most wonderful being in the universe, full of love, full of power, full of might, that He rightly deserves all of our worship and obedience and praise. And the lie is in thinking that we don't have to give it to Him. And that something else ourselves is worth it. The world is not separated. Sometimes we make a mistake of thinking the world is separated to those who worship God and those who don't worship at all. And the truth of the matter we see in the text is that everyone worships. The only difference is what the object of that worship is. Is the object of, wor- of worship the true God, or is it something else we've lifted up and, and said, this is the God I will bend down to? So, rather funny. We saw an illustration of this in the Chicago Tribune in 2008. talking about a man by the name of Kevin Baugh. Kevin Baugh has his own country. The Republic of Melosha. And if you don't mind, he'd prefer you to call him His Excellency Kevin Baugh. And he has an, after all, he has an impressive khaki uniform with six big gold medals and those, you know, things on the shoulders and a general's hat with a gold starburst over it and a green, white, and blue sash that goes across his chest. Have you never heard of the Republic of Malaysia? Well, neither have I. It's understandable because it consists of Baugh's three-bedroom house and 1.3-acre yard outside of Dayton, Nevada. According to the article in the Tribune, Baugh has an extensive space program consisting of his model rocket, a currency pegged to the value of chocolate chip cookie dough, a railroad model size, and a national sport, he favors broomball. And in, his, in this landlocked desert region, Kevin Baugh even has a navy, an inflatable boat. The newspaper goes on to say that Ba, a 45-year-old father of two, is a micro-nationalist, one of a wacky band of do-it-yourself nation-builders who raise flags over their front yards and declare their property to be, in the words of Ba, "the kingdom of me." And I got to say, I read that and I thought, man, I really don't want to just meet this guy and have you know go to coffee with him. Not at his house. Don't know what the laws are there and it's humorous and it seems on the surface peculiar and enigmatic but if we begin thinking about it more thoroughly we think we realize that the only thing really peculiar about the story is that Kevin Ball has gone public with what most of us do privately according to this text Kevin Ball has got up there and shouted from the rooftops this is the kingdom of me I am the sovereign ruler. I determine right for wrong. I have my own nation. I can do what I want here. It's all about me. And many of us instead want to hide behind clever PC sayings about exercising our choice and having certain rights and believing what we want. And we do the same thing in the end. We worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. We see this manifested in our culture in, in numerous ways. First, we see it manifested in the use of our God-given skills, gifts, and talents. If you're familiar with Genesis 11, Genesis 11, God said, he tells the people, I want you to go and I want you to spread out through the earth. And, and, and they, they do a not-too-surprising thing. They get together and say, Hey, let's stay here, and let's erect this big tower. And everybody that's going to look at the tower, they're going to say, "Wow, you're so great!" And we'll make a great name for ourselves. And and God comes down, and He just stops this thing before it ever reaches fruition. And I don't think it's because God is against architecture, engineering, or teamwork. It's because here they had this opportunity to use the gifts they had been given, and they said, "We're going to make a great name." They weren't doing this imagining that people are going to walk up and say, "This is incredible." How did you do this? So that they could then say, well, we worship a great God. And He's given us these skills. And we use these skills for His glory. And so don't praise us, praise Him. No, they wanted people to come up to and say, wow, look at this tower. How did you do this? So they could step back and say, it's pretty nice, isn't it? I was the foreman of that crew. And hey, my buddy over here, he was the engineer that designed that parapet. And look at how great we are. All of us in this room have gifts, skills, and abilities that God has given us. But how we exercise them determines whether or not we're giving honor and thanks to the Creator or honor and thanks to the creature, as he says in this text. And it's worth saying that we're just as likely to use our spirituality and our religiosity as an opportunity to bring praise to ourselves as we are anything else as we reflect and enjoy telling people about how long we pray, about how holy we are, or what God has secretly revealed to us. Commentators have read much in the last few months about Tim Tebow and his, his getting down on the knee and thanking God every time he gets the touchdown and, and, and it's in an effort to give God praise. And it's been on like every network has been talking about this. And it's ironic that we don't see the same level of conversation or consternation about the receiver who catches the ball in the end zone, spikes it down, thumps his chest, high-fives his teammates, and runs around in the crowd, jumping up into the stands. For some reason, we're very comfortable culturally to see people elicit praise for themselves and honor the creature. But the minute we talk about honoring the Creator, all of our hackles stand on end. Secondly, we see the worship of the creature through the exaltation of culture's reason. In every culture throughout history, has had its beliefs, its values, its taboos, the things that are praised and the things that are vilified. It's actually a rather interesting exercise to examine your particular culture and say, what's valued? What's praised? What's lifted up? And where is that Christian and where is that not Christian? Where? And, and then ask yourself the personal question of saying, all right, this is the culture's value. And if it runs contrary to God's revelation, who wins? Is culture's reason exalted in my heart and mind over God's revelation, or is it the other way? Who am I worshiping, the creature or the creator? Modern examples abound. Just by way of time, I would give one. Ever since the beginning of the 20th century in America, we've become very aware of other people groups and other religions. And you've seen this increasingly growing movement throughout the 20th century, now in the 21st century, to say, well, you know, in the end, Buddhists, Baha'is, Christians, Muslims, Jews, we all worship the same God. And we're all saying the same things. We just maybe understand God, whether He's a he or a she. We understand it differently. In the end, every one of us is going to be saved. It's this, this picked up even more strength. About 10, 12 years ago, a book came out with the title, Abraham, became a bestseller, on the New York Times list, where the author claims that Muslim, Jews, and Christians all worship the same God. We all have the same spiritual, physical descendant in Abraham, and even though we understand God differently, in the end we all worship the same God, and we're all going to be saved. It is a feel-good, politically correct thing that, that, that seems so popular in our culture. The only thing we can be exclusive about is our inclusivity, is what we're told. And yet, is that what Jesus says? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In fact, it begs the question, if someone could be saved apart from Christ, why did the sinless Son of God have to die on the cross? If Jesus Christ lived the life, the perfect life we can't live and He died the death that we deserve to die so that we would be saved if we put our faith in Him, if that happened and yet you could be saved without ever knowing or caring about Jesus, if you could be saved by just thinking that He wasn't God, He was just a prophet and not even the best prophet, if you could be saved by thinking that He wasn't even the Messiah the Jews had been waiting for, that he was cursed by God, That his death is the worst tragedy in all of history. All of a sudden, the, the creature is worshipped because it is, seems that we know better than the God who loved us, died for us, and who has revealed Himself in history and in time and through His Word. Great reformer John Calvin wrote, when the truth of God is turned into a lie his glory is obliterated. And this is a problem for all of us whether we are followers of Jesus Christ or whether we are not. Because we all run the temptation when we receive God's revelation of receiving it or of exalting our own reason and ignoring it. I've seen tons of I've seen believers dismiss numerous commands, clear commands in scripture with excuses such as it it was different back then, things have changed now, it doesn't make sense. I've had some people just be very honest and say, well, I don't really like that. And I don't want to downplay the importance of using context in interpreting Scripture. And yet I dare say when I have most people that tell me, Pastor, I just don't believe that or I'm just not going to do that, it's not after a thorough conversation about context most dramatic example I've ever personally had was when I was doing college ministry and we did a lesson on forgiveness. And you know the whole idea was very basic. It's hey, if we have really accepted the fullness of God's forgiveness that we have in Christ, how can we not forgive other people? If 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 how can how can we be the unforgiving debtor? If we have really just embraced the fact that we are sinners in need of a savior and we have received that, how can we not forgive other people? And afterwards, I had a man, young man, young, he was probably a year younger than me. It's um, time, comes up to me afterwards and he says, Hey, that's great. Um, I just don't believe it. And he had a Bible in his hand and, 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 we, and we started a conversation. And I tried to be as pastoral as I could, which at the time was probably not very. And, you know, we talked and he said, Well, we only need to forgive if people ask for forgiveness, right? Like, I don't have to forgive anyone until, until they ask for forgiveness. And we went back and forth. Finally, I opened up to him the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says, after the Lord's Prayer, if you don't forgive other people, you will not be forgiven. And he talked about all the parables. Again, likely unforgiving debtor, went back and forth. And I said, you know what? And here I am, trying to be pastoral, and I said, you know, sometimes it's hard to forgive when someone doesn't ask, particularly if they have done a monstrous evil. And I said, you know, you have a great opportunity there to make an excellent prayer. You can come to God and say, God, I don't want to forgive this person. I really don't. And I really can't. But you, ca- you compel me to. Will you help me? Help me to forgive this person because I don't want to and I know I can't. But you tell me to. I need your help. He said, that's a beautiful prayer. Nope, don't believe it. Back and forth. And we went from text to text and he'd just look at him and say, I don't believe it. Whether we are yet in Christ or not, we share an ability, perhaps a propensity, to seek autonomy by worshipping ourselves, by worshipping the creature and obeying our own desires and inclinations rather than that of the God who made us. We want freedom. We want to be completely unfettered. German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Ethics, really reframes the conversation well. He says, we think of freedom as what we are free from. We think of freedom as the absence of constraint, right? I am free from rules. I am free from obligations. I am free from requirements. I am free to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want. That's freedom. That's freedom is in worshiping that in the creature. He says, you know, true freedom is not what we are free from, but what we are free for. True freedom is the ability to be free for. Free to be who God made us to be in Christ. True freedom is the ability to live according to the nature and the way that God intended. True freedom is is, is the embracing of what God has made possible. And the more that we rebel against God in our quest for freedom, the less freedom we actually possess as this text quickly tells us as we look at God's response. Verses 24 and 25 are nothing less than chilling. God honors humanity's rejection of Him by giving it over to its desires. Three times we see this line. God gave them up. He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. Theologians call it God's judicial abandonment. You know the image we get is one of in in the ancient world when a prisoner he was convicted as a guilty, he was sentenced, and he was given up. He was turned over to punishment. Judgment was at hand. Most of us can relate to this on an everyday level. You've had that person that you've you've counseled, you've given advice, you've shared with, maybe it's a a sibling, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, and they ignore you, and they ignore you, and they ignore you, and eventually say, fine, have it your way. Let what comes, comes, good or bad. The hard thing to swallow about this text is that the language goes even stronger than that. It's not as if God simply says, Alright, you've rejected me, let's let sin run its natural course and like we're a boat floating along the water towards our destiny. No, the image, is, as commentators point out, is one of God actively pushing and propelling us into our sin once we have rejected Him. It's striking. Do you want a heart bent towards lust? Fine, go there. Reap the whirlwind. Do you want to continue to reject my ideas of right and wrong? Fine, I give you over to a debased mind. May you cherish what brings nothing but wickedness and suffering. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Fine, have it your way. God pushes, when we reject God, God pushes us to the conclusion of our sin. And He shatters the Santa Claus-esque notion of God that we want to have. And yet against the backdrop of a perfectly holy, righteous God who made the world to function fruitfully under certain conditions, can we expect anything less than the rejection of Him? And perhaps as we are pushed to feel the full fruit of our sin, we will cry out to Him for the salvation that only He can give. Verse 27b um, furthers the shock. They They receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Or if you have the NIV, the due penalty for their perversion immediate context, of course, is talking about homosexuality, but there's a larger context that this is talked about in the Scripture, and I think it is worth looking there first. It's not the first time we see this idea in the Scriptures. Proverbs chapter 1, and God is speaking to His people. He says the following, "...because I have called you and you have refused to listen, have stretched out My hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all of My counsel." And have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes like a storm and calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. Did you catch that last last sentence, that last verse? They will eat the fruit of their own way. He's giving them over to the due penalty of their perversion. Sin never promises pain and suffering, does it? It never does. Sin always promises greater joy, greater fulfillment, greater happiness. But its fruit never turns out to be that way in the end, despite what it promises. You know, we lie and we, we gossip and we slander, thinking, okay, maybe I want to get out of trouble. Or maybe I, I'm, just, I'm just so weak and sad that I want to be the kind of person that people trust and people enjoy being with. And in the end, we end up being the kind of person that no one wants to entrust themselves to. We, we lust over images on the screen or in person, thinking that's going to give us some type of satisfaction or physical fulfillment. And in the end, all we do is shattering any kind of true intimate relationship we have in the present or might have in the future. Because we just can't get these images of our mind, and we become more animalistic than intimate doing the kinds of sins that God would never approve of in our homes, on college campuses, and everywhere around. We walk away from God's admittedly, by our standards, stringent and conservative plan for sexuality within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. We think it is too narrow, too old, too boring. And we open the door for all manner of difficulty and heartache and disease and suffering. Most modern commentators, we look at Romans 1, and we all agree, the due penalty is the fruit of the pain of walking away from God's perfect plan. We love our autonomy, but taken to the extreme, it leaves us as sinners being carried away to sentencing. What do we make? of a hard text such as this. Two things. First, we embrace a biblical view of sexuality while at the same time loving homosexuals. This is one of the three texts in the scriptures that at length talks about homosexuality and paints a picture that it is not God's standard or design. He says rather clearly in this text it is contrary to to nature. Contrary to nature. Contrary to God's design. And it's worth saying sometimes, you know, we moderns, we look at the text and we say, well, weren't things different back then? And haven't we evolved? And haven't we gotten smarter and and isn't it a choice and we use all kinds of modern language and it's worth pointing out that paul's statements here would have been just as shocking to the people he wrote them to as they are to us here in 21st century america the jewish people were the only ancient people group that condemned homosexuality as falling short of god's design it was very popular in greece it was very popular in rome it was widely accepted and endorsed and the gentile romans that received this in there would have been just as shocked as some of us are today when we read this and yet paul inspired by the holy spirit wrote it none the less and any attempts to explain it away do violence to the biblical text and yet most self-proclaimed believers of Jesus Christ, it seems to me, make one of two errors when we, when we approach the text like this. We fail to do Dave's operative term of living in the tension. We, you go to the one extreme where you see pastors like Fred Phelps who get their congregations to go out there with signs at funerals or army marches saying, if you're gay, you're going to hell with some kind of implicit idea that their sin is of a much worse category than my sin. And even if we don't go out there with signs, we implicitly walk around with that attitude. As if somehow people that are gay are in other category than myself. Or we go to another monstrous area where we just say, hey, it's okay. And I think every time it comes up in the Bible, it just doesn't apply anymore. And we ignore God's revelation. The truth is somewhere in the middle. We have to embrace God's biblical plan while at the same time still loving people that either don't agree or that are not there. You know, I have had the privilege of having, a lot, of having numerous people with same-sex sex attractions over my house. And I have eaten meals with them. And I have embraced them. And I have prayed with them. And I have tried my best to walk that line between saying, hey, I'm going to love you, but I'm not going to tell you it's okay if you ask. In the same way that I would not want someone else to endorse my temptations and my sins as being all right. I cannot do that for them. By the grace of God, several of these people now are in monogamous heterosexual relationships and they say they don't face this temptation anymore. Praise God. But we have to walk that line. Second thing this, text, this hard text teaches us is that we have to have an honest measure of humanity. The list of sins in verses 29 to 31 is virtually broad enough to cover all of humanity. PC thing in our culture to walk around is to say, well, we're all basically good people." So what, I think that's what we, we all probably, say, you know everyone says, before you're a Christian, I would have said, "Oh, I'm basically a good person. I haven't killed anyone." And, and we create an other category. There's me and there's them, right? Well, you know, in the church, we do the same thing, I think. In the church, I think we often look and we say, well, there's me and there's them. You know, they have this sexual sin. They have this sin. They're, they're a drunk. They do this, hey, I'm not that bad. Yeah, I know I lie and I know I cheat a little bit. I know I slander once in a while. And I know sometimes I disobey my parents, but... They're in a different category than me. And yet here we see the shocking thing that all of these sins are lumped together in one category. We have God-haters next to people that are disobedient to parents. We have people that are foolish next to people that are malicious. I don't know how you can look at this text and walk away with the idea that we're all basically good. Because if you say that, you don't need a Savior. Garrison Keillor puts it, rather humorously as usual in his essay entitled The Current Crisis in Remorse he writes, quote Remorse, it's a fictional essay Remorse is a fairly new area in social work so it's no wonder that we get the short end of the stick when it comes to budget and staffing take me for example for three years I was the only professional remorse officer in a city of 1.5 million people and my supervisor told me that I was expendable and it's not only me Around the country, morale and remorse has never been lower. We in remorse are a radical minority within the social work community. We believe that not every wrong in our society is the result of complex factors such as poor early learning environment and the resultative disassoci- disassociative—I can't even pronounce it—communication. Some wrong is the result of badness. Some people act like jerks. They are jerks. They do bad things. End quote. You know, the Bible goes even further. It says that it's not simply that we do bad things, that we are apart from Christ bad. Romans 1.28 says that our minds are debased. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says our hearts are hardened. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says our eyes are blinded. Ephesians 4.18 says that our minds are darkened. Colossians 1.21 says we are hostile to God. Colossians 2.4 says we are deluded. Colossians 2.8 says that we are deceived. 1 Timothy 6.5 says that we are depraved. And 2 Timothy 3.8 says we are corrupted. We walk around with such a pleasant view of ourselves and then we look at the Bible and we see a markedly different Revelation. You know, the great physicist Albert Einstein wrote that the real problem is the hearts and minds of humanity. It is easier to denature plutonium than to denounce the evil spirit of man. Because we don't want it denounced. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to believe it. It is a hard truth, but it is God's truth nonetheless. And an awareness of the depth of our badness or our depravity can do four things. Four very good things. First, it can drive us to the cross of Christ. And it's the only thing that's going to drive us to the cross of Christ. Because when we come in, in full view of our own sin and its horrific effects on our hearts, on our minds, and on our actions and beliefs, we realize... We have no hope short of Jesus Christ. And it is only then that we will cry out to Him in repentance and faith, as the people did at the very first sermon when the scripture says they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, What can we do? And Peter said, Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second good thing it does is it can elicit praise in our hearts. Show me a people that do not praise God with well or loudly with their words or their actions or their hearts. And I see a bunch of people that are not really convicted of the depth of their sin. Because the gr- more we realize how far gone we are of ourselves, the more we shout loud and proud in song to our King because we realized He did what nothing else can do. We realized how much we really needed salvation. You know, like that shark Dave gave in the first week of, you know, God's holiness and our depravity. When we think that God's like here and we're right here and we're not all that bad, why should we praise Him? But when we realize that in our sin we are beneath the basement and He is up above the Empire State Building, we will praise Him loudly because we are filled with joy over the great work He has done. Third thing. We will go to prayer for the lost in our lives like no one's business. Because we'll realize that they're a sinner just like us. And we don't want to see them stay in that place of those dozen adjectives you just heard me read. And we want to see them saved and we realize that that will never happen apart from God's special work in Christ. And we'll realize that our best efforts won't do it will realize that that person is never going to do it of themselves. They never just freely choose Christ. They can't. They're hardened, hostile, deaf, blind, dead. Nothing's going to happen until, as Jesus says in John 6, 44, unless the Father draws them to Himself. And so we pray for that. We pray in our prayer closet. We pray in the shower. We pray in the car. We pray with a family. We pray in the morning and the night. There are people I have been praying about for the 13 years I've been in Christ. Some of them are saved now. Some of them are not. But the more we realize the depth of humanity's problem, the more we realize that the only hope for this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will pray and trust. Fourth and finally, we will go. We will embrace God's call in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. Because again, we will realize that that is the only hope for this world. And we will see the picture God gives in Revelation of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation standing before God's throne and exalting Him. And we will say, I want to see people brought from death to life because the world is not full of basically good people who just need a little intellectual Jesus. The world is full of basically sinful people that need a savior, that need, to be, that need to no longer be given up to their lusts and given up to their debased minds. I can't read this and realize that the people I know and people I don't know, that that's who they are. And I'll give my life to see them changed. And so we go. Maybe you'll go in five weeks when we start this evangelism class, Way of the Master, and you'll get equipped to share the gospel. Maybe you'll go around the world like some people in this church are praying about God's call for them to go to be a missionary somewhere else. Maybe you'll go just for a week to Guatemala this summer to see life come where death currently reigns. I'm paraphrasing Tim Keller. Let me say that the wonder of the gospel is rooted in the fact that we are more sinful than we ever dared to admit it's worse than we ever wanted to believe and yet the wonder is that we are more loved more loved than we ever dared hope than we ever dared deserve that though we were things are so bad that god has given us over he now wants to draw us back and give us life in christ let's pray Father God, we want to love You. We thank You that You loved us while we were still in our sins, that You loved us before we were ever seeking You, before the thought of You was ever on our mind or on our hearts. God, compel us. Draw us to Your throne. Draw us to Your Son that in Him we would have life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.